when the season could be in two weeks or or two months. So sorry, sorry, sorry. When the season could be in two months or never, it's that's the MLS. A North American soccer podcast with myself, Andrew Bates, and Nick Thornton. Hello. Nick, how are you? I'm so good. Just rolling. I really love all the uncertainty uh, around everything in all aspects of life. So good. It's, It's like, it's wild to read sort of a wire, uh, a wire press, uh, a, a wire story about MLS uh, season, uh, which was the, the season dates were announced um, were announced yesterday as we record, so that would be the twenty fifth, and they uh, um, they are looking to kick off on April third, and then uh, have the playoff each uh, thirty four game season playoffs get underway in November. Uh, MLS Cup on December 11th. Um, and then you view the one from the Vancouver Providence where J.J. Adams is like, oh, by the way, the 30-day negotiation period expires in three days. <laughs> yeah, which of course is referring to the uh, the collective bargaining agreement, which has been in flux. Now, a question for you about the schedule and the announcing of the schedule. Two days before... I think it was two days before. A few days before, Don Garber released a statement to fans that was basically just saying, like, we really, really want to play soccer, and we really hope we hear from the MLSPA soon. But we haven't yet. But we really, really love soccer, and we really, really, really want to play soccer and have a regular season, but the ball's in their court. And then right after that, a like pub- very public acknowledgement that there's no deal in place then announcing the schedule to me like <laughs> this is not coincidence and this is meant to apply even more pressure to the MLSPA to get an agreement done i like that the players association quote tweeted that statement from garber with just like add us next time yeah <laughs> i saw that well and tr- and truly like, it's just so transparent that it's like this is a letter to fans but this is really maybe a phone call to the MLSPA that you should have made um, and then, of course, in the announcement for the season, there's just the tiny, tiny little footnote of the um, the small fact, and this this will be ironed out, I'm sure, easily, that there's still no arrangement for the three Canadian clubs in MLS in terms of how they will play. So there's all of this stuff happening, which feels like, oh, the wheels are really in motion, but I'm I'm kind of left wondering how much of this is a bit of... Uh, a tactic to apply pressure knowing that you know the schedule we we know the schedule can be flexible and moved around there's kind of three in in the past uh both in terms of the i guess the the seasons that resumed uh that were canceled by or that were postponed by the pandemic and sort of season two of covid um for different leagues they've had different ways of handling this 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 Canada travel issue, which is that the Canadian borders are still closed. It's still not really safe to do in, you know, cross-border travel. Um, so how do you do it anyway? Because it's sports and nobody is going to tell them no if they can help it. Um, and you, we've seen the NHL model is to have a Canadian division 
the NBA model is to essentially base them, uh, or base the Raptors completely out of Tampa Bay. Um, in the past, MLS has had sort of the the blended approach of we're going to do a Canadian division for as long as it makes sense before we can hope to hail Mary and be able to to have uh, have some sort of solution for Canadian teams. How, mm-hmm. what do you think if you had to, if you had to venture a guess at this time and then the fourth division, first fourth option obviously is that they don't play. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think if you had to guess at this time is like the most, a uh, most likely uh, um, result? Honestly, I think the most likely result is the, the thing that has already been tried and tested. And, I would say with a, deg- a relative degree of success. I feel like Vancouver will be playing out of Portland and the Toronto and Montreal will be playing out of sister cities in the East. And I, I mean, the way this schedule is, there might have to be special considerations for how you don't just have players essentially living on the road for eight months of the year. Um, I just I find it very hard to think that there's going to be a much more innovative response to it than that. You know, like, <laughs> I I just feel like if knowing what how MLS has responded to things, they seem to be a big fan of 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 just kind of staying the course once they've found something that works relatively well. But of course, it it raises you know the new issue issue. But I, I guess in you know you could have if we could possibly see a start of the season where it's the Canadian clubs playing in a bubble again against each other um, for at least, you know, the first few weeks and seeing how things go. But like, like we've said this whole time, it just feels incredibly optimistic to be making plans two months from now as the virus rages ever larger everywhere, you know, and with new variants on the rise. So it's almost like, that's my guess, but <laughs> what <laughs> like, you can say the jury's out on literally what's going to happen tomorrow. So there was this, you know, um, my understanding of what is uh, happening NWSL wise is that they are going to try and do another bubble tournament, mm. and I know that um, to start, I think they're they're going to try and do a, more of an MLS style of a of a bubble tournament plus season. Um, and the, I know that there's a lot of negatives that go into having to go into the bubble for so long and be away from your families. But I wonder, especially if they can shorten the length of it, maybe by splitting it up into two bubbles or something, that still seems like a great way to punt for me. Yeah, I mean... and. I think that makes a lot of sense. If you almost had a season that was kind of done in like three acts. So you do, you know, an intense, let's say four or five week period in a bubble and you squeeze in a bunch of games and yes, it's a lot of games in a short period. And then, but then you give people, you know, maybe a couple months break and then you come back and try to do it again. But I mean, the way that they're looking at the schedule, they've essentially arranged it as if there is no pandemic. And so, and that's where I kind of come back to, I don't know how realistic or even 
like concrete this schedule is supposed to be or if it's actually more of a bargaining tactic because they know they might have to throw this all out anyway and start from scratch given how covid goes that's a i mean point like the virus is there mls is lucky in the sense the virus really started raging out of control like right as the postseason was wrapping up so there just hasn't been any soccer during this stretch but it's not really getting better i mean there's some states where things are starting to drop off a little bit but i feel like we're you know to say we're going to be playing soccer in two months um that that seems ambitious and not necessarily based on reality but lots can change yeah it's gotten it's like you know it's worse than it was in november which is worse than it was in the spring when they went back to doing or not in the spring sorry in the summer when they went back to doing the stuff uh the 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 home market games um and i know that in canada they say they want to have everybody vaccinated by september so you know things could the the situation could change but september could Mm -hmm. be later i know uh i could be wrong but i'm pretty sure that the the states is thinking december a little more but i'm not 100 percent sure um Mm -hmm. the it is a crapshoot and the in much the same way as last season went it feels like the mls uh response to all this the the mls response to the crapshoot will be evolving as the situation evolves yeah yeah i mean i like that's probably a better way of saying it it's just like i mean do any of us really think mls has a a concrete plan for for this like you know i and which isn't to say that people haven't been putting in a lot of effort into this but yeah let's let's be real they've been again it's just been making it up as you go and seeing what you can maybe get away with in a particular circumstance there's just oh there's so many different moving pieces i don't envy anyone who has to try to schedule this shit i feel like they probably just spun a wheel and were like (laughs) sure this this uh this is a schedule here you go in the in the wake of doing all this 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 was the context that in my mind Made it so strange to watch the MLS Super Draft. Yeah, uh, coming back around, you know, one of the things that you see in one of the in one of the articles that I've read is player sources saying uh, if they're losing all this money, they certainly haven't stopped buying players, uh, or mm-hmm. they're certainly not paying less for players than they uh, than they ever did, or 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 paying. Uh, there's there's been lots of transactions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and partially that's because the change that the league wants is to extend the current agreement for two years, which of course, if you're the players and you're thinking, well, we took a pay cut, it's not going to be a pandemic in two years, hopefully. <laughs> well, and I think that that is a thing that clubs and the league are banking on is that, yeah, that in a, a year or two, um, they're going to make a shitload of money <laughs> and they're investing in players like that's the case. So I, I think that, you know, there's definitely the financial hardships in the short term that are, that are very real for clubs and for the league, but I think they're going to be fine. And they also know that there's a huge amount of revenue to be made for, uh, you know, if, if these, if sporting events become safe, 
there's going to be, I think, a, a major, major push. I mean, I don't think there's going to be too many empty stadiums once it's safe to have people in stadiums. Uh, that draft uh, um, took place... Uh, what was the actual date of that draft? Um, I want to say that it was the... Um, it was January 21st. The 21st. Uh, two, days bef- t- two days before what is becoming almost a... Uh, a annual tradition of Philadelphia dumped all their picks. Yeah. <laughs> and they're joking about it. Not even interested. Well, but I, I like that this year they joked about it and also we're kind of clear about, like, we just go through our academy system. <laughs> so, you know, it's not like they don't have a plan, at least. Yeah. You saw some people... It's really interesting that, like, you know, you'll have teams that... um you'll have teams that are are not at all even interested in taking a look at the draft and then you'll have you know uh Vancouver trade Vancouver was able to do a deal for a, a roster spot um with with some gam uh to trade from 36 to 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 allow Nashville to go from 46 to 36 as though that's mm-hmm. going to be a big you know a big deal for them yeah. Um and you will and there was one the 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 main sort of part of the the storyline of the draft uh as it unfolded was um the projected number 1 Philip Mayaka uh was not the player picked by Austin FC they picked Daniel Pereira. Um Cincinnati it seems kind of stuck to their guns. I think they were planning to take a defender and then this player was available and they continued, they, they picked Calvin Harris anyways, because they, they weren't going to move off their plan. And then Colorado who had traded up from nine to three was able to get uh Mayaka. So don't, uh, those are my understanding is, is that it's sort of the top 10 players of the draft that are going to be, um, people that you'll hope to see uh, uh make an impact mm-hmm. in some way it was funny to watch the the commentary early on in some senses watching it now the the stream is 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 the first part was just like hearing the team try to guess what they think like would make their projections for where think where teams are going to go with picks and get almost all of them wrong um, which I mean, like, I, I don't, it's who can not begrudging them that it's just, it's an interesting, they spent, yeah, like, like context for the whole thing. The, it's to watch them in, in motion, spend five minutes, talk about how Mayaka is the number one guy that's going to go number one in the draft. And then that doesn't happen. And then they, you, you hear, they don't even, they don't even say, they don't like go, whoa, surprise. But in their heads, they're thinking, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, like, you know, past... Commentator's curse. Past that... Happens all over the place. And, uh, absolutely. Don't, doesn't anybody who, who says words about sports have, uh, have that experience? Um, it's like me watching them. <laughs> 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 um, the, and then, like, when you get into the, the later stages of the draft, like, past sort of pick... 10 or 15 or 20 it's like this guy goes to a college we know what college he goes to 
He's probably not going to show up this season. He's okay. He's under the age of 21. <laughs> that's like, that's what's so challenging. Like, you definitely do see players jump from the draft into uh, into the season after they're drafted sometimes. Um, and like any sports draft, sometimes the players that do that are not the players you expected to have happen on draft day. But Like Jake frickin' Nerwinski? That's right. Yeah. Um, but you can kind of... It's almost strange where it that where it lies in the the hierarchy of MLS player acquisition to you know this was the thing that they were talking about when Vancouver came up um was they were like what does Vancouver need Vancouver needs a DP9 <laughs> or Vancouver needs a DP number 10 and it's like but they're not going to get it from uh they're or they're not going to get it from the draft so i guess they might draft David Egbo and then they drafted David. Uh, they drafted Egbo. Yeah, um, but I also. But I feel like it's it's up to clubs to make the draft relevant to themselves, right? Like it's not the draft's fault if the players, you know, don't end up with contracts or you know don't make an impact. I, so if I feel like the draft is just like another important piece for player acquisition and to see a different, you know, field of talent, but. You know, like it—it it doesn't have to be everything. It can just be like a method. Also, it's uh, worth noting that every team got their little, uh, every team got their little hype package. You know, of course, Austin for the first pick had Matthew McConaughey pop up to say some stuff about Austin uh, as a city, um, and even the the non number one pick still got like a little highlight package of the of the best players, and for. Vancouver, instead of doing that, um, Russell Tiber popped up to be like, Bell, let's talk. Donate some money. Hmm. So that was uh, that was a, a, a nice little gesture. Um, yeah. The, it, it, was, it was almost weird to hear that on a league-wide basis because it seems like such a localized Canada thing. A little bit, yeah. Do you have that in the States? Um, the... Uh, the other, the funny things, uh, well, obviously Calvin Harris is the same name as a, as a musical entertainer. Uh, yeah. Also, uh, LAFC drafted a player called Danny Trejo. Yes. And Danny Trejo, the actor who plays, uh, who stars in the Machete movies, uh, shot a little video welcoming to Los Angeles. So that was fun. I feel like they did this, like they drafted this poor kid on his name alone. <laughs> Well, at one point, uh, at one they, point that was that player came. I was I had done a little bit of pre-draft reading, and that was so, that was a player that some people had going to Vancouver in the in the draft in the in their hmm. mock draft. So I was a little aware of this individual who who uh, who comes from the California college system, uh, hmm. but it is there. The it certainly is a. a you know, for a team, I had to check the LAFC owners list to make sure that he wasn't on it. <laughs> uh, the other funny things uh, I also enjoyed: um, RSL pick Brett Halsey kind of looked to me like uh, turtleneck rock. He had like a black <laughs> turtleneck with a chain on, and I was like, "Nice, uh, amazing!" And also, Chicago uh, drafted a player called Mitch Guitar. Who's got long, who had a long hair and a beard. And I'm like, this is the greatest. This is my new favorite uh, person. Solely on name alone. 
Yeah, well, you got to have your favorite name in MLS. It's important. <laughs> and I like it when we can add some great new names. I personally was the biggest fan of, I mean, I, not, I know not a lot of people were paying attention to the 52nd pick, which went to Columbus Crew. But Joshua Jackson Ketchup is possibly the greatest human name that's ever existed. <laughs> Ideal. To be to have the name of a like teen idol from the like nineties and then hyphenated with ketchup. Uh, also out of the Vancouver Whitecaps Academy. So there you go. Nice. The also the other funny moment I just looking over my notes, uh DC picked fourth and then traded up to take traded up to five and people are like Oh, they want somebody that that, that they haven't do, and they had to do a timeout to decide who they wanted to pick up at five after they traded up to five. <laughs> and it's like having a plan. <laughs> what was that about organization we were talking about before the show? Do do your homework. Have your notes ready. That is uh, uh, a lot of coach movement as well in the league since we last met. That's right. Do we were were we able to talk about Gaby Heinze moving to Atlanta, be be uh, hired as the Atlanta coach? I think it actually had happened, but we didn't talk about it, or maybe we mentioned it right at the end. So we've got Gabe Heinze is uh, the the former Manchester United player, uh, now coach, uh, is going to be the new uh, the new steward. Of Atlanta's uh, uh, continued evolution as they as they try to move on from a, a pretty unsuccessful tenure with Frank DeBoer um, and a how dare you a, a tumultuous season. Um, it was bad. The uh, as everybody expected, Greg Vanny moved to the LA Galaxy, mm-hmm. um, and in Vancouver or sorry in Toronto he was replaced. By Chris Armas, who had been recently of the New York Red Bulls. Well, as we said, you know, if you're going to replace somebody like Vanny, you want to do it with a non-controversial pick. So Chris Armas is just checking all the boxes for somebody that is well loved. Oh boy! Yeah, it just it does kind of just feel like like he's fine. This is a this is a good MLS coach. A a. A team that made a, a unproven selection, I think, is DC, who um, drafted Argentine coach Hernan Losada out of, uh, or not drafted, he they they hired him out of um, Beerschot in Belgium, where he had been yeah. kind of a not too dissimilar to Ben Olsen, had been a, a totemic player uh, in terms of of. Uh, playing for the team, leaving, coming back, retiring with the team, and uh, and managing to uh, to some success. It is, it is, I believe, his his one or two seasons with the club, um, and now they've uh, they've decided that this is what they want to go with. I think that it could be an inter- It's interesting to you know pick up a rising talent. Uh, a little bit, I wonder, with the caliber of some of the individuals that they had uh, talking to them, mm-hmm. um, I kind of wonder. We've seen, we've seen better coaches crash or burn in MLS than than, yeah. than a than a second uh, than like a second year coach who just you know who who just entered the business, um, mm-hmm. but. 
if they think that that's their guy and they are they have they want to have the the confidence in them, I think that that's a a, a good step to make. Um, and one team who does think they have their guy is Inter Miami, who has hired oh. Phil Neville away from the England women's national team. Yeah, I that was one where I was like, okay, right away I was like, I get it. You know, get the Beckham connection, sure. But I'm not sure I get it in terms of achieving the thing you'd want to achieve, you know? But I guess in, in like, not an untested entity, I, I'm just a little bit surprised that, kind of as you were saying about with DC, is, like, out of all the people that would have been considered that that's where you landed is just interesting i shall we say i am going to be uh uncomplimentary and in reach into sort of the the woman's soccer fan part of my mind is saying i'm so glad he's out of women's soccer i'm so glad he's out of the english women's national team which has so much talent and i think could be judged to have underperformed and it really felt and and you see um opinion pieces that have this idea that that his his plan was about his his plan for the future of that team was about him. It was not about the team. I think that they should never have hired him to be the coach of the England women's team, and they will be mm. so much better positioned to have anyone else. Yeah. <laughs> whoever whoever England women hire are going to be a. Um, a benefit, and I'm just happy that Canada hired Bev Priestman mm-hmm. uh, before that position became available. Because if if Priestman was still in the U.S. or still in the uh, the England setup, oh, yeah. um, that would have been mm-hmm. that would have been the uh, that would have been the move to make it for them. Unless, Probably. and this is a name that was also connected to the DC job, unless Jill Ellis is headed to England. That could that could be mm. the key that that unlocks both of those interesting those situations. Now I know that's a lot of not. I feel like you've been at at the corkboard with your yarn connecting all these dots here. <laughs> now I, I so this is where I admit that like all of my all of my thinking on this signing has been how it affects the women's game to finally not mm-hmm. have to make space for Phil Neville. Um, well. And and I I mean I don't know if this is is kind of what you're alluding to but like we've seen that before too in MLS where like they make a coach signing based off of the name and the personality but sometimes they have a name and personality because of the ego and that's maybe not actually the right recipe for success in MLS is you know having a, a bigger name um, yeah it, it can it can help but like some of the most successful coaches in MLS weren't anybody before that. Um, yeah. Don't know. Miami, clearly this is done out of the feeling that, that there is more desired for Miami than they have been able to provide in that first season. Um, the, the nice thing is that you now have uh, the Iguains in place to start the year. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there is a history in MLS of when 
when players show up halfway through the season, um, they need a, a full preseason camp. Of course, it's the pandemic, so that's going to be harder than usual to get a, a full a, a full camp, whatever a full normal camp looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that it is going to be about uniting the disparate pieces. Um, there is a concern that Phil Neville had England, very talented England players having a very boring style of play um, Mm. for the women's team. I have no idea how that is going to translate into what you, what he does with Miami um, and whether or not they're going to have a same similar style of play, whether or not he's going to change what he does based on the players that he has available to him. Um, That all remains to be seen, but I just am not, I'm not brimming with confidence about this one. No, I mean, they could do, they could do worse. (laughs) Atlanta did Um, last season. I mean, last season. Um, I mean, Inter Miami certainly couldn't hurt from a bit of organization. So the boring style of play, if it's like a low defensive block, (laughs) is maybe the right choice to start. Uh, this relatively new squad with, but yeah, I'm, I don't, I was sort of more surprised mostly just because I was like, oh, that's, yeah, that's a choice. Um, we'll see. We'll see. I honestly, it kind of feels like the sort of coaching pick where you're like, well, I expect Inter Miami will perform better in some areas than they did this last season and worse than others and it will cancel each other out and they will end up in the same place in the table. <laughs> you know? Like, I just... Yeah. We'll, we'll see. Um, lots of player movement as well. Just a couple of quick things. Um, back to the, the Vanny piece. There's now a rumor circulating he wants to bring Giovinco back to MLS. Oh and my to LA god. Galaxy. I feel like this one's a bit of a stretch. Then again, I said that about Vanny to Galaxy. So we'll see. Um, I guess it all depends on the money. You know, uh, do Galaxy have it. Um, Galaxy have it. The uh, certainly. Jer- I'd rather have a Giovinco than uh, Ibrahimovic. That wouldn't that be so weird to have a to have G- like like after it it felt like Vanny's tenure, especially the 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 ascension to. <laughs> Watch him bring in Michael Bradley. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> oh, Galaxy fans burn their stadium down. <laughs> they would have loved... I'm sure that... It, like, I don't know if Bradley's ever going to play for a U.S.-based MLS team again. They're going to have to get... They're going to have to get real used to him. Feel like he's comfortable north of the border. <laughs> um, um, what, el- what else are you seeing? I see. So you got Javinko. We got Javinko rumor. Um, Corey Baird from RSL. Uh is now a member of LAFC. It's a good um, attacking pickup for them. I was a bit surprised that RSL was willing to let him go. Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if um, Real Salt Lake has some, some moves coming up to bolster their attack. Uh, Michael Barrios from Dallas is now in Colorado. So adding another quick uh, pacey attacker to their um, their squad. Kendall Waston has left MLS. He is now back in Costa Rica with Saprisa. I was a little surprised um, with the Barrios thing. That's another like Dallas uh is a team that that was did okay things last year, but you were kind of hoping was gonna move 
onwards and upwards, and they've sort of been shipping off some of their best players. Yeah, I feel like that too. I I think we should do a, a deeper dive into um, Dallas's roster build. I again, I assume that they have um, players that they want to make trades for, and I think you could argue that Barrios did about as much as he was going to do at Dallas. Um, but still a pretty impactful player for them. So, yeah, that, w- that was one that definitely caught my eye. Um, then, of course, one of the, the most recent big, uh, big news moves was uh, Jordan Morris has been sent to Swansea on loan, so we will be playing over in the UK. Um, I wanted to ask you how you felt about this. Uh, like... Do you think that this is a good move for Jordan Morris, for the Sounders? Less keen on it? I think I'm not necessarily um, I'm not necessarily somebody who absolutely feels that you have to reach your your full potential um, in Europe. And I also don't have any stake in the US men's national team, so the idea of of, of the idea of needing to develop him further is not something that is as high at the top of my mind. Um, Mm -hmm. But I certainly think that he has done a lot in Seattle. He Seattle is not going to change anytime soon to be a, like a starring role for him. You know what I mean? Like they have, they're going to, it's going to be an ensemble cast in Seattle for, for a while. And if you have this opportunity, especially to do it on loan, to mm-hmm. get your name out in the Premier League, um, that could be exciting. I I wonder a little bit if this is going to be, especially because it's with Swansea, if this is going to be just sort of a, a, a toes-in-the-water situation of seeing how it is and then coming back, almost similar to when Landon Donovan... Um, did his loans to Everton mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. and then never really moved. Um, he did. He was. I mean, I think it kind of depends on how he'll play over there. I suppose that's true. It's almost. It is. It does feel like a trial maneuver of just like, can he impress? And if he impresses, will he get picked up somewhere else? Yeah. Well, I mean, and now that the Sounders have locked down Brian Schmetzer to a multi-year deal that was just pushed over the line over the line this week. Um, I think there is a, a long game with Jordan Morris's development. I mean, he's, for me, he's, they had to do something with him at 26. If he's not playing 90 minutes consistently, I feel like that's an incredible waste of a a player entering their prime. Um, And I, I feel like he, as good as Jordan Morris is, you definitely see where, like with some fine tuning and, and pushing him a bit, he could be an even better player. Yeah. Um. So I I'm kind of good with either. Like I feel like in terms of the player, it it was necessary. You want to see? I'm. This is a move to Swansea to play minutes. Like this isn't a a just. I don't know. Maybe he'll break into the first team squad. I think it's kind of Jordan Morris's spot to lose. Um. And. For the Sounders, I mean, they get their player back, presumably, at the end of it. Um, or he excels and Swansea extends you know, a major offer to them worth a crap ton of money. Or, you know, another club takes interest. So I feel like it's a it, 
it's got to be a good move from the Sounders for a player that, although he's really great, and you think like, yeah, but think about all those times he comes off the the bench and makes such an impact, or he starts games and he just wears defenders down. But as you say, like with the the full squad of attacking players at Seattle, given his age and needing to develop other players and get other players minutes and keep your DPs happy. I think that this is is the right move for the player and for the club. Yeah, he's a he's an extremely it's, like it's no risk really for them. He's right? an extremely like, likable guy, and I know that you uh, you and I both enjoy him a lot. So, so the best wishes on his uh, on his English adventure or his Welsh yeah, adventure. Yeah, you know what? I, Welsh adventure. Yeah, his Welsh adventure. Yeah, no, I I I take pleasure in seeing any MLS player do well in Europe, um, particularly in England. I, I, I sort of like that there's a, you know, I still think a little bit of looking down the nose at players from MLS, and that's clearly changing. So it's fun to be, um, you know, to see that in action. Um, the Whitecaps also announced today their big signing, um, Diber uh, Caicedo from Colombia landed they've opened up a big pack of fifa ultimate team cards and boy did they mm-hmm. land a player they were excited to remind us all has an 86 rating for potential in fifa 2021's career mode i love that you know in absence of actually having much useful information about a player we're like well the digital version if you keep at it pretty good at times the, the what, what a time to be alive. At times we've you know we've seen challenges with the Whitecaps, the in in some critiques of the Whitecaps scouting, and not, not everything yeah. the Whitecaps have done has has panned out. We know this is something that they have tried to improve under Axel Schuster, but it is still very funny to me um, that this is that it's almost like guys we scouted using FIFA twenty one's career mode. If you're gonna if you're gonna scout use with a video game, use Football Manager. Come on. <laughs> I also wanted to share with you. Uh, I looked up online um, different uh, because I wanted to see what kind of reputation he had. Uh, different tweets about Caicedo uh, relating to FIFA. Um, here is a tweet uh, from a Colombian user. Uh, Nicholas E1099. Diver Caicedo is like a, uh, is how to create a FIFA player with 96 acceleration and the rest at zero. Um, <laughs> and I also, there was another one I saw. I did see literally somebody say, uh, I like, I like Diver Caicedo uh, in FIFA. Is he a good player? <laughs> Uh, before all this news has happened. So certainly this is, FIFA is a route. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the, the topic of, di- uh, of, of Deber Caicedo in FIFA is, uh, is hotly discussed. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it could be a great signing. Certainly the amount of money they're spending seems to signal something good and a lot of faith that uh, this is a player that will continue to develop. I mean, 20 years old, he's got room to grow in this team. So I I like that there's a really healthy expectation being set already that he's going to come in and he's going to be dangerous. And also, you know, they're going to be patient with him and, and try to get him up to 
to speed to really have a like a longer term impact with the club. So that's good to hear. Admittedly, when the Whitecaps announced signing a new winger, it's kind of hard to get too excited because you're like, great, another person to get attached to that I'll say goodbye to in a year. <laughs> um, there's a long history of wingers not quite working out in our team. Um, I hope I very much hope this one is different. My only other note was that. Uh, our trend seems to continue of signing players that are like under five nine and 150 pounds soaking wet. Mm. And so I'm all for the speed. I'm all for the attacking pace and talent, but I would love if we could also add some size. Cause I, I feel like that's a part that we, we suffered physically last year. Uh, just not having quite the, the, um, that <laughs> just the size quite frankly, in the physical strength. Um, that obviously matters a lot in this league, and so it'll be interesting to see. He's a, he's a small, quick player, and we know that how effective they can be in MLS. So, ah, Here's a here's another... I can be positive about things. Here's, a, here's a, just one more tweet. Uh, this, this, is the, this is the full version of the tweet that I said. There were, somebody's asking Brazilian blog, players for the future. Uh, what about De- what about Dedar Caicedo? I never heard of him in the real life, but I got him on FIFA. I use him all the time. Uh, and the the blog replies, "Good player, despite his young age. He plays for the sides of the field, mostly for the west left wing, and that's where he stands out the most. He has dribbling, good game vision, likes one v one, and can attack space as well when without uh, when he does not have the ball. So, if you are like FIFA players." Uh, if you like Vancouver, is a FIFA twenty one player who wants to know whether or not Demir Caicedo is like is good in real life. That's apparently uh, his his scouting report. Yeah. Um, I just saw something in your notes. Another big move of a, a player we we know and we like heading to Houston. Houston have made a lot of... Like, Houston's kind of a, a, a dark horse in the player market, I feel, in this offseason. Because mm-hmm. they have indeed uh, acquired via trade Tim Parker. That's a good signing for them. Like, <laughs> I'm I'm just... I'm, I'm still having a moment of adjusting to, wait, Houston signed a center back? They, like, <laughs> invested money in a defender? Okay. Yeah, as, 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 as shocking as it may sound, this was one of the things that popped up um, just before the draft. They traded him. To, they they uh, uh, traded four hundred and fifty thousand dollars of general allocation money to uh, New York with um, performance-based incentives for potentially another six hundred thousand uh, gams. So they could top uh, a million if uh, if he does well down there. Yeah, it's it's a great pickup. I mean, I think he stalled out a little at Red Bulls, as most players who've played for the Red Bulls have in the last couple of years. Um, I, I feel like it's a good shift of, of scenery, and um, I mean, yeah, it can only go up for Houston, so that's a great impact signing for them. Their picks, uh, they're, uh, um, they got a center back in the draft, Ethan Bartlow, uh, and also in the offseason, they got Fafa Picot from Dallas, we've mentioned, um, they got Joe Corona in a uh, a trade with Atlanta, or sorry, with uh, Austin after the expansion draft, um, as well as picking up Maxi Arudi for Montreal, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, Tyler Pasher and Derek Jones. Yeah, all all some some good strong picks. 
It'll be a big reorganization for Tab Ramos. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Do you think that they will uh, will have to be dealing with their their new noisy neighbors in Texas? <laughs> Austin, I believe so. As their roster has started to take shape, a couple of interesting things that um, kind of stood out to me. I mean, it's always fun when you have a new team because, of course, the vast majority of their team is just a scattering of free agents from MLS. Um, but some interesting pickups. The, they took on uh, Nick Lima from the San Jose Earthquakes along with Danny Hosen, which I, I thought, you know, it's great to have those two players playing together. Um, yeah. Ben Sweat as well. They picked up from Inter-Miami. Uh, what was the... Oh, Alex Ring from New York City FC. I don't even know who's left at New York City FC anymore. Um <laughs> It's Valentin Castellanos kicking balls to himself off the wall. <laughs> Apparently. And then, uh, oh yeah, and then Diego Fagundes um, from New England and Matt Beasler as well. So, like, lots of, of really great, um, really great talent in there. And, you know, obviously lots of MLS experience. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, I think they've got some more signings coming up. Or maybe, I don't know if they've quite been announced yet, but... There, there's lots of rumors swirling, and, and Austin FC sets to be building their roster, so we'll keep you posted as that kind of comes to fruition. But I'm getting strong Inter-Miami FC vibes from this roster build. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about it. You think a little bit, uh, a little bit, uh, you know, not it's not sort of uh, defensively centered? Yeah, and I would say, like, looking at the roster as it stands, I kind of go, I feel like they will play, like, the sum of their parts and no better. Like, they will have moments where they do quite well and, <clears throat> you know, are not going to get completely pasted like a, a Cincinnati or something, but still on paper looks like a, a you know, maybe not the strongest squad. Um yeah, defensively <laughs> needing some work, but 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 great picks. So we'll see. It's the thing, you know. I've hear people. I've heard people, you know, say that they have their eyes on Nashville in terms of their evolution and, and what they want to, uh, how they want to build their team. The mm-hmm. challenge is that they don't really have that Walker Zimmerman style player that that anchors it. We yeah. have we have defenders that we recognize like Lima and Sweat, but. Not to not to necessarily be too negative on them, but the reason why we recognize them is because we hear about their names all the time because we, yeah. they play on teams without structured defense. Yeah, which again individually doesn't mean that they're bad players, um, you know, or not good picks. And sometimes that's the the role of the dice you make, right? Where you think, okay, maybe the player will succeed here and have a little bit more success. I mean, Joe Corona was certainly a big galaxy name in their midfield, but also just kind of faded into obscurity at points. So this could be a good refresh. Oh, Corona's gone. Corona's already off to Houston. Oh, right. That's right. He, he was, he was an Austin player for like nine minutes. Right. (laughs) Um, Well, then maybe Kakuta Mane is my example, who is another signing they announced to. Certainly did not reinvent himself at Cincinnati and seems to be the the journeyman in MLS. um, And this is his new club. We'll see what happens. 
and then it's a starting point. It's a starting it's, point. It's, it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like they're, and, and I don't really think a team has to or should these days shoot to be a, a Seattle. You don't have to as an expansion team in this this era of MLS. I don't think you have to hit the stage and be you know uh, and and like prove how you're going to change the whole scene around you in the way that a Seattle or 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 an Atlanta has. Too many teams have, have tried to do that and had it not necessarily be the success they hoped. I think it is better to have a fundamental beginning and look to build from there. Yeah, and, and I think Austin, like a number of other um, expansion sides, have also really considered like the academy system and how that plays into it and like the infrastructure they're building suggests an eye to long-term success rather than kind of an overnight one but yeah i mean there's more than one way to get there and i don't think there's necessarily a faster route um sometimes just certain decisions pay off a little better than others um, another big piece of news that kind of happened in and amongst uh, the world feeling like it was collapsing and a lot of other stuff, but uh, one of our long-time standing goalkeepers in MLS has retired. Uh, Luis Robles has announced his retirement and will not be playing in the 2021 season, and it just feels so weird and wrong to me. <laughs> To think, like, I don't know if I fully accepted it. I'm just expecting Luis Robles is going to show up in a at a club next year. It's really unfortunate. Um, I kind of wish that they had, that um, New York, had, now that it's done, I think that he had a fine year last year in, in Miami. And, and if this is the time, then I salute him for all the, the wonderful years he's had in MLS. I wish he got to have more of a of a victory lap. Um, yeah, or, preferably well, with his own club, but yeah, and even just a send off, like a proper send off. I mean, and I saw lots of tributes and stuff pouring in, but it, it's very different, you know. Like to, for a player that's been in MLS for fourteen years, to not be able to take a, a lap around the field and get a standing ovation to me is is kind of bittersweet. But, I, the roster news there is still fluctuating in, in advance of the season to come. They uh, they did also have their um, their college draft, but uh, we know that um, Leon has mm-hmm. uh, is the owner of the Rain, and they have uh, they so far. I I would say that in the season that we've just yeah. had, it's been almost it's been to me anyway a little bit more rain. Than now, if you look at the, the the original tweet in French that sort of reports these comments and and, and talks about the, mm. the president's thinking, um, mm. he suggested that next year, uh, two of the following three players, he says, perhaps one of these players could go over next year. Um, uh, Wendy Renard, Jennifer Morozin, and Sarah B- uh, Buhari which are all absolutely, like, best players of the best te- club team in the world <laughs> level. Like, Wendy Renard in NWSL would be outrageous. People were already just tweeting, like, 
I'm I'm planning the road I'm planning the road trip now to see that. Sarah Buhati is one of the best goalkeepers in the world. Any one of those three, um Yeah. Either on a temporary sort of off season loan or if they did spend the year working out of the US office yeah, that'd be sick. Of, of of the club would be like a huge yeah. benefit for the team in the league. And I think that maybe this type of movement, I know a lot of people have been concerned about NWSL as certain players make their moves to England, some on loan, some permanent. And I think that especially as um, NWSL retains a, a summer schedule that we will see a little bit more of this movement and hopefully as well in the other direction. But it might be a special case just because of the of the linked club status with with um, Leon in the rain. Um, one of the uh, oh yeah, one of the other weirder pieces of of Canadian soccer news is the uh, the Montreal oh, yeah. Impact <laughs> is no more, uh, but not that dramatic. The Montreal uh, made their impact and have decided. To shift away, float like a snowflake. It's sting also like a snowflake. They will be they will be CF Montreal Club de Foot Montreal is what they will be. They've got they've unveiled a crest that has a stylized version of the snowflake on it that looks like several um, several uh, organizations, um, Canadian and Quebecois in nature, including the uh, the the city's police force to me has a very similar logo. There was a, I think there was like an expo logo circulating as well from the sixties or seventies. That was pretty, pretty similar. I mean, let's be honest. It looks like a, a lot of rearranged clip art, which is a lot, well, a lot of logos of just shifting uh, some pieces around. Um, obviously there's lots of better logos out there. You know, I'm, I'm kind of fine with it. Like, it is i think we can just as a blanket statement say rebrands are unnecessary and stupid but <laughs> it doesn't mean you have to do it poorly and i don't think this is being done poorly i think you know it seems like they've made lots of considerations it also seems like a lot of impact fans are like why <laughs> just why but also Basically, you know th- i think it looks okay the, it sounds good this is the problem with the branding like a branding exercise like this when it isn't, you know, fan centric and community centric is that you have, I think that you can, you can visually, you can kind of complain that in a Canadian sense, it might be a little generic with the snow, the snowflake motif. Um, but I agree with you visually. It's harmless to me, but the only negative being that it's yet another club in MLS with, a with a, uh, a home strip that's uh, main color is black and that has a a circular logo. We're picking up we're picking up teams like this all the time now. Yeah. Um. But harm. But overall, I don't hate it. I just think that 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 a club like that had so much you know history and not just like even though it's second division history winning history around the name impact that 
the the branding I'm okay with moving away from the the logo and stuff the word mark okay fine get rid of that yeah but it had been the club's name for so long and and CF Montreal just feels so boring to me I just don't care yeah it, it just says all the hallmarks of a rebrand and reading the story behind it it really did feel like board CEOs and like sporting directors who are just like no I wouldn't really consider it unless like you made a pitch and then the guy was like what if we did this and it was like eh maybe and then yeah it just it this one felt like maybe a, a product of lockdown like maybe this wasn't <laughs> a planned thing but it was just right you you sit in your you sit in your your apartment you think what if I try this haircut and you cut off your whole half your name yeah yeah exactly <laughs> yeah, it, it uh, unnecessary. But now that they did it, the actual rebrand itself is like, yeah, sure, fine. I think it's also one of those ones that no one's gonna care. Like, I don't think anyone cares about it now. But like, once the season begins, we'll just be like, all right, I guess this is what's happening. Sure. We just have to think about like what the new identity is. Like, like are people gonna call them the snowflakes? Is that gonna be good or is it gonna be bad? Who knows? I do think that that you know the lack of the grassroots adoption of this so far seems to be pretty significant um just because you know you have the you have the tweet you know where it's being announced being like all of us together towards a common goal and then everyone in the comments are fans say change it back yeah i mean the the twitter the twitter mob is kind of a hard gauge sometimes but it, it i would suggest that the fact that the physical logo outside outside of Stad Saputo was immediately vandalized that maybe <laughs> broad adoption of this new branding message is not <laughs> fully in effect yet but uh like a whatever like a tactical choice it all depends on whether or not it works like yeah this was my feeling about Houston I don't particularly love or hate Houston's rebranded logo but if the feeling is Nobody care about the old logo, and and we think that people are gonna like this, and they're gonna want to wear these shirts and these caps. Sure, if you think that that is what's gonna work for your fan base, do it up. But if this is kind of for nobody, you're gonna cause yourself some problems. Yeah, and like I would argue that for the cost of the rebrand and printing and all of the stuff that goes into it, which in the grand scheme of things is maybe not. The, you know a huge amount of the budget sign a player win some games like that that That's is what will point. make you money <laughs> oh well it, related related unrelated chicago is doing another rebrand they're not they're not doing another rebrand they're doing they're doing consultations on another rebrand following their disastrous rebrand before last season I hate it so much <laughs> I mean, I, I hate I hate the rebrand currently. Oh my god, you're not you're not joking. It's their whole homepage. <laughs> Why? See, this they is got, the thing about this show. We've been doing this show. This will be our fourth season of doing the show, and I still can't discern when you're fucking joking. <laughs> and the more I think you're joking, the more it's likely an actual MLS story. <laughs> Can we talk about something positive? Hope for the future. The young, the youths, the academy system. Uh, we can. Uh, the Whitecaps have announced another extension of their uh, their academy centers. 
a project where you, where you know that they've had uh, uh, they have had academies and development centers um, across the country. Uh, the new thing that they popped up that was of interest to me is the Atlantic Canada Development Center, ACDC. I mean, by name alone. <laughs> Getting to this be head coach pi- of ACDC just feels like that's always going to be a sweet job. This is uh, this is something that they've they've made a part of their the the Whitecaps have made a part of their academy system um, in terms of kind of just being the extension feelers for the residency uh, mm. in Vancouver. So this is these um, this is sort of an, a system that that identifies players that go to um, that go to that will then be going on to Vancouver. Uh, and, and try to, to see if they can find people um, to to advance into the the pro ranks or to the to the academy that they could maybe develop into pros yeah. and into the uh, girls elite rex system. Um, the thing that had been the the most surprising to me uh, was, of course, that they announced it the the a system with. Uh, a partnership with Soccer Nova Scotia, Newfoundland and Labrador Soccer Association, Prince Edward Island Soccer Association, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> nothing for nothing for New Brunswick, where I live. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I talked to the club, um, they sort of gave us the 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 indication that that this was because they had had a partnership ongoing and and that um that they had had conversations with soccer and MB and that at that time they'd had a relationship with the impact. Um, now we, that was, uh, in 2016. And, and they said that now that they have, uh, a full-time person, which is a, another component of this is that it's going to be a full-time guy is, is here to, um, to manage the the programs that are be going going to go on in these other three the provinces that there might be further conversation, um, and so I thought it would be a good idea to have a chat with this individual Mike Iash the uh, the the head coach mm-hmm. of for Eastern Canada um, was kind enough to uh, to give us some of his time so uh, here is the conversation I had with him. All right, I'm here with. New Vancouver Whitecaps FC BMO Eastern Canada head coach, coach Mike Iash. Mike, how are you? I'm great, thank you, Andrew. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. You are in Halifax. Is that where you were? Uh, were you based out of there before you got this job? Yeah, I'm actually. Uh, I've lived in Halifax uh, since I moved here when I was 16 with my family from uh, East Jerusalem, Palestine. So uh, this is home for me. This has always been home. Um, and, uh, I lived here, worked here, played soccer here, coached soccer here all my life. Uh, I went, um, uh, I, I ran a soccer club in Nova Scotia for eight years called Bedford Soccer Association. And I worked with the, uh, Nova Scotia provincial program, uh, with Rex and, uh, the Whitecaps, uh, opened an academy center here with the, uh, Soccer Nova Scotia Association in 2016. And, uh, I was part of the staff here. And uh, shortly after, I was offered a job in uh, with the Vancouver Whitecaps in London, Ontario. So I started there. I moved there um, in 2017 in April and uh, spent uh, close to four years in Ontario uh, building a club there in the uh, 
OPDL, the Ontario Player Development League. And uh, I just came back here in, uh, a few weeks ago um, uh, to start a new role as the Eastern Canada head coach for the Vancouver Whitecaps, uh, overseeing the Atlantics and Ontario. So what kind of, um, what kind of operations will be taking place uh, in Atlantic Canada now that the Atlantic Canada Development Centre has been launched? Yeah, we're really excited uh, for the future here because it's really an evolution of what started in 2016, where we had, uh, you know, relationships as a pro club with with uh, the three Atlantic provinces in Nova Scotia, PEI, and Newfoundland, uh, where our staff would would uh, come occasionally, you know, periodically, quarterly, and and, and um, work with staff, work with players, scout, identify uh, the top players, and bring them to Vancouver for trials. Uh, and, you know, run camps uh, in the summers. This position now is an evolution of what started three, four years ago. Um, and, and the idea is to bridge, is to have someone full-time in, in my role, living in the area, working more consistently with players, with coaches, with associations, with clubs, uh, to develop and identify players that we would like to look at for the next level, which is our full-time academy in, in Vancouver, and hopefully... Uh, onto the first team and in the girls situation as well Rex where we have girls elite Rex uh, program in BC or actually one of the Nova Scotia players that I worked with uh, in my time here ended up moving to Vancouver to billet and live there for uh, two years um, as she was a national team player so so my role will be to grow what started and, and encompass more uh, you know be on the field and off the field more more consistently in the area and, and travel between the provinces and then connect them uh, hopefully, of course, once COVID is over, for training opportunities, but also for competition uh, opportunities, uh, and also connecting the Atlantics with Eastern Canada, where we have a lot of uh, relationships with uh, top clubs in, in uh, different parts of Ontario, including Whitecaps London, and then from there, connect all that piece to Vancouver Whitecaps. Um, in Nova Scotia, uh, PEI, and Newfoundland Labrador, well, how would you describe what uh, an academy center does regularly? Like you, you, you mentioned full-time academy in terms of what's going on in Vancouver. Um, but what's the, what's sort of like the, in, in obviously a non-COVID normal time, you know, season, what's the operation of an academy center like? So, so each province is a little bit different. Um, and, uh, Essentially, the, the programs here work with the provincial associations directly. So it doesn't work separate from the provincial programs in those provinces. Uh, essentially, and, and we don't take the players out of their clubs or out of the provincial teams. Essentially, what, what this is, is um, a high-performance program that operates as a training program, um, supplementary to provincial association programs. So if, if there is like a, a U14 provincial team, made up of players from different clubs that play in their high performance league or tier one leagues. Um, they still do all that. And then we select what we think are, are the most high potential players from a few age groups. So like 13 to 16, bring them together. Uh, depending on each province, it's a little bit different. Um, in Nova Scotia, where I just started, uh, we bring them together three days a week in the afternoons. So they can still attend their own club training and their own uh, uh, club games and all that stuff. And, Essentially, we train, uh, and of course, when COVID hopefully is, is uh, in the past, we'll start to bring the best players from Nova Scotia, PEI, Newfoundland into an, an ACDC, an Atlantic Canada Centre team that then would be a, a travel team for a week or 10 days 
to compete uh, for scouting opportunities and, and things like that. But then they would always come back to their, to their clubs. So what we're doing is not full-time. It doesn't replace the clubs or the association. It works uh, as an addition to them. I guess that was the, that, that uh, in a sense answers kind of one of my first questions that I thought of when I saw this uh, being in New Brunswick, uh, New Brunswick not being one of the Atlantic uh, Canadian provinces involved in this. So the, in, in I had, uh, I'd spoken with the club and the club had said that, uh, could you give a, a, given a little bit of an idea of, of what happened with that process? Could you give an indication of what's going on with, with New Brunswick in, in the club's Atlantic plans? Yeah, I mean, um, uh, like I said before, what, what the ACDC, what we uh, uh, started here, what we're starting here is, is just an evolution. It's an expansion on what was already in place. Um, so New Brunswick uh, was not part of the uh, initial um, uh, partnerships in 2016. Um, uh, for, their, for reasons that they can only speak on, uh, that it's not my place or our club's place to uh, speak for the New Brunswick Association, of course. Um, from our side, of course, we would love to, to have a partnership to work with, uh, with the province because it's a lot of talent comes out of New Brunswick and it's uh, something that we would like to open a conversation with the province about and see if there are ways that we can uh, work together. Right. And, and my first thought when I heard that there was, you know, um, potentially at the time that the academy centers were rolling out, um, that there was concerns that, or that, that soccer MB may have been working with the impact or another team. My first thought is, well, why can't the Whitecaps do, or what makes it so that you only have the only one team can be doing it at one time? Uh, and would you say that that is just because you don't actually, you're working with the province's program? So, so like you kind of have to be working directly with the province's program as opposed to setting your own stuff up? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we don't want to come into anybody's uh, province, you know, or, or area without their support and approval. Uh, that's not our mandate. So we want to work with associations and we want to help them um, in any way we can to progress their players, give them opportunities. And uh, of course, geographically, it may make sense for, for certain provinces to align with another MLS club that's closer. And that totally makes sense. Um, uh, from, from our standpoint, we don't want that to be an obstacle. We want to work with, uh, with all the Atlantic provinces. In, in, and, and again, it's different in each province anyway. So it's different in Nova Scotia to Newfoundland to PEI. And uh, we have started the early conversations with New Brunswick about how we can uh, work together to, to incorporate New Brunswick players and coaches in some sort of uh, collaborative effort in the program. Uh, regardless of any relationship they may have uh, with any other club. From our standpoint, we're happy to work with anybody that wants uh, uh, support from our end and, and to give their players different opportunities that they may not have currently. Sounds good. And the, the, the other um, cooperation piece when it comes to other pro clubs is the Wanderers. Um, where do Halifax Wanderers fit into everything for, uh, for you and for the club? I, I, I think, I mean, I'm a Halifax boy that, that grew up playing here and I, I went to school next to the Wanderers ground before that school was, was demolished. So that's how old I am now. <laughs> um, but I mean, to, and I've been to, uh, in my visits last uh, two summers ago when I was here visiting, I went to two games and 
uh, I mean, it, it is absolutely amazing to have a pro club, a pro team uh, soccer in, in our city in Halifax. Uh, the buzz around the stadium, the, the atmosphere, the, the quality soccer, the, the stadium, the field, the people, 6,000 people in the stadium. So I think it's fantastic. Uh, and I'm a big supporter of, 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 uh, of course, the, the Wanderers as a Halifax uh, person myself. Um, so fr from the standpoint of, of how it all fits in, it doesn't conflict. Uh, we're not in the same space as far as what we're doing. Um, our area of, of, um, that we're focusing on in Nova Scotia, for example, is, is really the, uh, you know, working with grassroots clubs, but mostly the 12 to 16, 17 age groups. And those are the youth players that we look to develop and, and bring into Vancouver uh, for show, showcases and for events to really see which players in the country should move full-time that we think could move full-time to our um, fully funded program in Vancouver. Uh, you know, similar to the case of Alfonso Davies and, and, and things like that. So we're just talking about the cream of the crop to get into the next levels and, uh, and, and build it and move to Vancouver. Uh, the Wanderers are looking at the next age group up, so 17 to 23, which actually is a perfect pyramid because it fills the gap. So if, if we're not looking at a player at 14, 15, 16, um, and instead of coming back and maybe going into a senior league or uh, playing U19 local soccer, well, now if they're good enough, they have the Wanderers pathway at 17 to U23. Um, and they get to train with, uh, with a professional club here, with professional players, and hopefully uh, get a crack at the CPL and make the CPL. And you never know. Sometimes the player is not ready at 17, 18, and maybe they need two or three years uh, playing an immense pro league. And, and uh, the future, you never know where it leads them. They may end up going to MLS. They may end up going to Europe. So, or they may stay in the CPL and have a great career, or they may go to university. So the, the pyramid here is actually structured really well in the province where there's no direct conflict as far as everybody, you know, fighting for the same space. Um, I have a great relationship with, with the Wanderers guys and, and hope, we can, hope we can work together in a lot of ways in, in the future. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it's only positive for Canada to have the CPL and have a, uh, two pro leagues uh, and, and various levels of professional soccer operating where just, you know, 10, 15 years ago in Atlantic Canada, you had to really, uh, really work hard to be just to give it, be given an opportunity to be scouted or looked at, never mind two pro clubs looking at players and developing, developing them. So I, I think it's awesome here. Yeah, I was going to ask that since the, the Academy Centers were set up in 2016, what are some of the challenges and uh, opportunities you've seen in bridging those gaps? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really big challenge. I mean, if you can, uh, if you can imagine coast-to-coast -coast centers from you know, different provinces, different cities, different areas, and each area has, has different types of challenges. There's no place, there's no two places that are, that are the same. Um, but we're a club, uh, we're a pro club that's determined to, to you know, um, overcome any challenges and obstacles in, in a healthy, positive way and, and do what's best long-term for, for soccer, for the communities that we're invested in. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the challenges I had in Ontario will be different than what I have here, will be different than what they, you know, maybe have in Alberta or BC. It's, uh, it's, it's never a smooth, uh, smooth road or smooth, smooth sailing all the time, but it's, it's also a, a great space to be in. It's a great job. We get to coach soccer and develop players. So, um, 
where, where maybe some people see challenges, we, we see opportunity for growth and opportunity for, for uh, uh, you know, offering opportunities to players that maybe would never uh, have been seen otherwise. Um, you know, you talk about a lot of players like that, that end up playing in the MLS from Saskatchewan, from, you know, um, Ontario, that, that, like from, you know, Alfonso is a prime example, um, you know, uh, and, and that's what we're looking for. We're looking for the next, and on the girls' side as well, you know, Tenny made it from Nova Scotia to BC Rex, and uh, it, it was a great two or three years for her in BC Rex before she went on to a, a university in the States. Um, so, yeah, I mean, challenges, of course, but opportunities is, is what we, we keep our eye on and, and building a better future. What are kind of the, uh, the growth targets that you guys would like to hit? Uh, you know, the club doesn't look at, at, um, at uh, like metrics per se in, in the sense that, uh, you know, Mike, in, in two years, three years, you have to put a player in the first team. It's, it's not like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you're, we're more interested in growing the game because sometimes you could do you could run the best program in the world and, and, and it wouldn't be, the results wouldn't be quantifiable. And a lot of things are under, um, not in your control. You know, you're working with certain talent pools with certain challenges in each area. So we don't have specific targets as in uh, from the academy centers that we would like to put this many players from Nova Scotia, this many players from PEI into the academy in Vancouver or, or uh, into the first team, for example, uh, of course, we want to have as many homegrown talent play, uh, you know, making it to the pro ranks, as many homegrown players from within our academy system uh, go into the first team. Uh, but from my position in Atlantic Canada, my job is to uh, develop players and, and grow the program and, um, you know, uh, see who, who actually has what it takes to make it and, and just give them opportunities. And, and that's how I'll be judged. That's how our program here will be judged is, is did we improve the game? Did we, uh, improve players did we manage to give players the opportunities and if, if there is an Alfonso Davies uh, somewhere in, in Atlantic Canada and we find him uh, all the better you know but um, certainly would not be a failure if there isn't because again that's the stuff that's sometimes out of your control as a, as a club director or a program director it's kind of more about ensuring that the opportunity like the that all of the infrastructure is in place Absolutely, absolutely. The, the infrastructure, um, uh, the development, keeping our keeping a, a very close eye on on players. You know, look, you look at um, uh, Jacob Schaffelberg, uh, a kid uh, from Nova Scotia, from Annapolis Valley, that's playing for TFC and and getting you know getting a lot of minutes um, as a 19 year old, I think, and that's a kid that came from Nova Scotia. So. Uh, there is no question in my mind. I, I grew up here. There's a lot of talented players that slipped through the cracks over the years that, that I played with, that I coached. And uh, our goal is to not let that happen again, to not let a player slip through the cracks because um, for their benefit, for their career, we want to give them at least a chance to, uh, to see if they can make it, something that a lot of uh, my generation just didn't have. Um, how challenging has it been to, to come on board with this in the middle of a pandemic? Yeah, that's the biggest challenge right now. It's um, it's so hard to plan uh, ahead, you know. Uh, without a pandemic, it's, it seems like another world now that we almost can't remember. Um, but without a pandemic, you could plan your whole annual cycle. You could plan when you're going to PEI, when you're going to New Brunswick, when you're going to Newfoundland, when you're bringing the teams to Ontario, when you're going to Vancouver. All that stuff is out the window now. You just, I mean, we're lucky in, in Nova Scotia right now and in Atlantic Canada that 
um, that we're able to train and play and, and compete in, in Ontario, there's a complete shutdown. Our club in Ontario is shut down for the foreseeable future. Um, and it's, it's, uh, you just don't know when you're going to restart. So never mind travel and coordinating events. So those are massive challenges for planning. Um, and all we can do is, is roll with the punches and plan as, as well as we can, put contingency plans in place. And uh, hopefully when this is over sooner rather than later, uh, we can get back to planning without considering COVID uh, and, and all the restrictions that it brings. Um, you mentioned the, the trying to grow the game and get opportunities for players and, and, and whether or not something is the, the goal is to put a player in MLS. One, uh, one part of the game I think of people, uh, people talk a lot about in, in Canada is needing more infrastructure, needing more uh, help to grow is the, is the women's game and, and opportunities for, uh, for female players. What do you think that this, uh, that this project can do for that? Yeah, I mean, from, uh, from the girls' side, um, we're, we're very lucky also to have uh, a pathway for girls uh, that goes, uh, funnels right through um, uh, BC uh, Girls Elite Rex, um, our full-time uh, funded program there where the, where the best players in BC and, and uh, the areas around BC and, and you know, um, players even from, from different parts of the country can, can go there. Uh, for example, I use Tenny as an example. Akindiju, she was a Nova Scotia player um, in our Rex program here. Um, she played with the U15 national team, the U17 national team, and, and at one point, we, we uh, I was working with her in Nova Scotia. But at one point, she needed to train and compete five days a week with national team players, uh, and we couldn't offer her that here. So she she moved to BC and spent uh, you know two or three years. I can't remember the exact number of years. And, and there she was really integrated into a program that was, you know, training with uh, Jordan Heidema, with Julia Grosso, with, with the national team players, uh, players that were equivalent to her, um, to her caliber that could keep her challenged. And also under the watchful eye of, of our um, rec staff there, our national team staff. I mean, everything was run out of uh, Burnaby, out of Fortias. So, uh, and that pathway still exists. We're very lucky that if we see uh, a female player um, on the uh, in, in these areas and the Maritimes that we feel could go into the next level, then we certainly have the opportunity to send them to, to BC Elite Rex for, for um, uh, whether it's a trial or an experience or to see where they measure against the best. And if, if someone is, is a really good fit, then that's an option for them. It's a little different from the men's side because we don't have a women's pro team uh, at the moment. Um, uh, so that's where things are different a little bit. You know, obviously, uh, there's lots of professional leagues around the world now, and there are different pathways. And being in the, um, you know, Jordan's in Europe, and lots of players are in the States. And, and being in our program and coming out of the BC Girls Elite Rex program does give those girls an opportunity to push on to the next level, even though we don't currently have a women's pro team. But hopefully that they will come as well. Um, the... Uh... We talked a little bit about what the club's plans are for in, in the progress that the club hopes to have in Atlantic Canada. Um, I know that in the history of soccer, especially for uh, fans of the men's and women's national teams, it, there are uh, a number of key events that took place in Atlantic Canada, including the qualification for the 1986 World Cup, etc. As somebody who's grown up uh, in Nova Scotia, what 
how have you observed the game change? And uh, like, what's your what's your thoughts on how the game has changed uh, over that time? And where would you like to see it go? Yeah, it's um, it's changed massively, and and for the better, I would say in a lot of ways. I mean, we've always produced fantastic uh, teams and fantastic, you know, great players in uh, uh, in the Atlantics. Um, you know, you go back to uh, the the King of Donaire teams and. Uh, that were just for me, you know, you know, players like Ante Jazik who came through that uh, that club, uh, uh, Dalhousie University. In those days where I played, uh, there were some really fantastic players that uh, a lot of them didn't get um, the opportunity they deserved in those days. That that we felt we were just a little bit out of out of uh, sight, out of mind uh, for for national programs, and you know, um, uh, so having the professional clubs invest more. Uh, resources, more time, more effort uh, to, to kind of cast the net wider and, and be present, more present in, in these areas is absolutely massive. You know, if, if you look back when I played, if, you know, you had to wait for someone to fly in from the national team and watch a couple of games um, and see if someone maybe is good enough to come to a camp and, and maybe not, and maybe the camp gets canceled. Now there's a lot more uh, with, with the advent of, of course, technology too, there's uh, easier to communicate and, and send videos and scout, and and um, it's it's a lot more synchronized. So, uh, and then the CPL, of course, having a stadium in, in Halifax that's full is something that we almost you know couldn't even fathom 10, 15, 20 years ago when I played. Um, so th I think there's a lot of positives, and with the World Cup in 2026, I think that could be. Um, a great moment to, to kind of just what happened in the, in the U S in 1994. And, um, you know, I think something similar could happen here. It could be a, a really big, um, a platform to uh, take the game to the next level in Canada. And I think we're already putting the, the blocks in place for that to happen. And especially in our, in our situation as the Vancouver Whitecaps, uh, we want to be coast to coast. We want to be, uh, the top club in, 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 um, in development. And, and that's why we're, we're doing all this. Excellent. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Mike. Thank you, Andrew. I really enjoyed it, and uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll connect again in the future. It would certainly seem like they have really like embraced the <laughs> national approach, and uh, you know they've set up academy centers everywhere, and I admittedly haven't been paying attention, but I feel like um, Club de Foot and Toronto haven't as broadly, or and certainly maybe not to the degree, like um, it's hard to think of a, a province now without a Whitecaps training academy. The The thing that really stood out to me in this talk was um, when Mike was talking about like the, the different pathways that are available to players and thinking about the age groups, right? And so um, how the, I forget the exact age range, but it was like the 13 to 14 year range is where like this academy is kind of focused, but with other clubs, they might like um, Ken PL might be looking at a different age group. So it's not, I like that he was kind of saying maybe not in so many words that like, it's not so much a competition as, as just really everybody's trying to identify their best picks, but you know, where they might not be ready to take the next step to be billeted out in Vancouver, they might then have an opportunity in Ken PL. Um, yeah. And that that made a lot of sense to me, and in terms of like starting to understand how the pieces fit together, and that so much of Canadian soccer is still building 
this infrastructure from the ground up so that there are more pathways for players available. And it really isn't just about getting good players for, for your club. Part of it is definitely about, like, if you have spots available, and I certainly think that there is a, you know, there's more and more discussion every month about when we're going to get Canadian professional women's spots, um, mm-hmm. uh, either an NWSL team or, or a league. I, I saw, I was almost going to mention, I saw with interest that uh, there's going to be a maritime uh, amateur uh women's basketball loop oh that's gonna have six teams and it's just gonna it's like uh windsor nova scotia two teams in halifax so one team each in moncton st john and fredericton and little the idea of a canadian nwsl is not very is 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 not it's not gonna happen now or soon um but the idea of more regional leagues, which is certainly how things are advancing in terms of mm. more youth opportunity, like like the how things are being built out in terms of youth um, on the men's side with League One Ontario, mm-hmm. um, that sort of stuff. I think that that could be an interesting way to to expand. But more than that, the challenge is just to be seen. You know, like like when you when you talk to athletes in Atlantic Canada, where yeah. there are lots of players, but the population density is such, and, and the lack of teams is such that it is hard to get in front of anybody's eyes. So, the idea not only it's interesting to me, and I am happy to see this idea that even if it's not even just like how many players can we get in the first team, as you mentioned. But just like we want to get, we want us to, to to identify the players that we think that we can get to succeed, um, and or just get players seen. We want to have a, a, a team that other people other people can scout off us. Yeah, is is yeah, kind of how it seemed. And I think that's an important piece that is easily forgotten. Um, that this is also a money-making venture for clubs, that it's not all about signing every single player. It's about the fact that you're selling players in, from your academy as well and and you're bringing money in. And in that way, um, you really can start to not only get great players, but actually start to have the thing pay for itself, you know? Yes. So that was uh, so that was exciting. And I'm, I'm excited to do a little bit more digging about, um, you know, how things are... are are progressing with the uh, with with player development out here. Um, the uh, the the other pieces and what other pieces of the puzzle there might be, uh, including with uh, you know soccer New Brunswick, Halifax, and stuff like that. So that might be that might be part of my you know uh, my my your beat this year. My summer vacation, except it's not <laughs> summer. My winter vacation. Yeah, but I mean, thanks for doing it because it's it's such an interesting insight into uh, a part of the soccer world, especially in the North American context, that we just don't talk about as much. Like the way that the academy comes up is always so focused on, uh, you know, players that have moved into MLS and then moved on to Europe, but we sort of forget about all the different steps that go in. So it's always interesting to learn more about it. Absolutely. Until... Uh, next week, 
in uh, until next episode when when we learn about the fate of the MLS collective bargaining agreement. Where can we find you online? You can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at that's so MLS, and you can find this show at MLS. Wait, that's not true. It's because MLSsoccer.com. That's not where you can find our show. You can find our show at thatsomls.com um, and on Apple Podcasts, wherever else you find podcasts about stuff. Please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps other people find the podcast as well. Yeah. Where can we find you? You can find me online on Twitter at www.team-debates.com. And until next week, don't get sent off.